When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Today, petrol shortage hits home as Spurs stop running and Arsenal players queue up to pump stranded Loris. Elsewhere, City have a walkover in West London. This time, Pep took all three points. While at Old Trafford, big day for Villa and Hauser as Ollie hits the roof and Bruno's spot kick does likewise. We round up all the stories, look ahead to midweek, all that kind of thing in this Toby Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hey, listener. Uh, Monday the 27th of September here as we record this totally quite a show and prospect I would say because uh, we have with us a Daniel Story of the Eye. Hey Daniel, morning. Hi there. A European football writer for the Daily Mirror, Colin Miller, hello. Good morning James, hi. Lovely to see you and roving face of Russia's Octo Sports, Sasha Gurionov. Good morning James. Much roving for you this, this weekend no? Quite a bit of cycling. Uh, fortunately, I didn't need any petrol because I was on the, on the two wheels. And uh, a man in the country uh, with no petrol, man on two wheels is king. So that was me. That's brilliant. And also, you went to see some football. <laughs> oh, that's true, yes. Um, some, some, yeah. some intriguing football and some ridiculously exciting football. Probably the game of the season so far for me at right. uh, Brentford. What a magnificent day. Yeah, you went to the Chelsea-Man City game and, and then that extraordinary match a little bit further out in West London fantastic stuff fantastic stuff everybody else enjoyed their weekend Daniel Colin yes thank you yeah I was at the Emirates for the uh, the Tottenham dirge but yes it was a good weekend thank you I'm actually still in Spain at the moment so I, I actually spent ah. a, 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 lo- a lovely weekend in, in the Pyrenees um, but, right. but watching plenty of football and keeping, keeping a keen eye on, on everything uh, as per usual Right, and driving around kind of gaily without any thought for your <laughs> yeah. yeah, Yes, on, on, on roads that, that, that weren't quite up to scratch, but, but the views were magnificent, right. so, so more than made up for it. Magnificent. All right, well, looking forward to hearing more about that uh, very shortly. Uh, first, the scores from match day six. Early Saturday, Man City had that 1-0 win at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea not even a shot on target simultaneously. Aston Villa did Man United 1-0 at Old Trafford with Bruno skying that last-minute chance to equalise. That's United's third defeat in four. Burnley battled to a 2-2 draw at Leicester with three of the four goals scored by Jamie Vardy. Watford Newcastle finished 1-1. West Ham won 2-1 at Leeds. Everton beat Norwich 2-0. The Canaries' 16th consecutive Premier League defeat. Brentford Liverpool finished 3-3 and was a treat. On Sunday, Wolves won 1-0 at Saints. Ralph Jimenez breaking his duck. Arsenal broke Spurs 3-1 in the North London derby. And still to come, it's Palace Brighton on Monday night. And if Brighton were to win that, they would be top of the Premier League six rounds into the season. Remarkable stuff. All right, where to start? How about the North London derby? You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Saka. Party through the middle. Aubameyang further over. 
Sliding challenge came from Kane. Saka goes on. Saka makes it three. Unbelievable Arsenal scenes. Sunday afternoon, Arsenal three, Tottenham one. Smith Rowe, Aubameyang and Saka with the first half goals for the Gunners and Son with a late consolation, such as it was for Spurs. Daniel, you were there. Uh, first North London derby with a full house since September 2019. How was the atmosphere? The Emirates was as loud as I've ever heard it. Um, I, I mean, I guess it was a, it, you know, it's a kind of perfect Petri dish for that in that, as you say, they, they'd not seen a, a North London derby for a couple of years and um, the match was sent like manna from heaven in terms of generating a, a, a derby atmosphere because... Arsenal were, were superb and, and Spurs were completely hapless. But even before the game, it did, it, it felt different. I think sometimes watching Arsenal from afar and viewing them through the kind of prism of social media, you can sort of assume that everyone's a little bit lethargic and tepid towards this sort of trust the process um, cliche. But the, they really have bought into it at the Emirates. They 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 delighted in in Saka and and Smith Rowe and Erdegaard and it, it was a it was a real breakout game for for Arteta. Uh, six of that eleven had been signed by him. Five the other five had been given new contracts by him. So this was finally he he would say his perfect team of the squad he has, and and yeah they 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 blew Tottenham away. Sounds like the crowd aren't the only ones believing in the process, Daniel. It's it's hard not to when um, they play with such an obvious strategy and their opponents not only fail to perform but you can't really try to work out we can't really work out what they're trying to do. Um, Arteta believes that that significant pieces of the jigsaw, so Aaron Ramsdale's distribution, Erdegaard's protection of the ball, Thomas Partey's energy in midfield. He believes those things are, are vital to how his team plays. And if you even take out one of them, things become much harder. And if this is the first time that we've seen this team, um, they couldn't have started better, that's for sure. Um, I mean, mm. I th I, we know with Arsenal that it's quite easy to see them taking a few steps forward and a couple more back. But for now, I was I was genuinely impressed, yeah. I, I was just going to ask, you know, is, is the process transition effectively? Because, I mean, if you, if you look at all the goals, they, they won the possession or, you know, came out... Um, from the back and really went up the pitch very quickly in nice geometrical patterns, uh, which Spurs were completely unable to close down. So, like, did did effectively the flow of the game really actually suit Arsenal? Because once they go up a goal area as well, then they can't they can counter even more effectively. Um, and I think also getting the crowd on board. I think if you compare the games over the weekend, someone like say Stamford Bridge, the, like, Chelsea never gave the crowd anything to shout about. Whereas here at the Emirates, they got an early goal. And I think then everyone's up for it. They have the confidence in what's going on, and they're winning those 50-50s. Even you know borderline maybe decisions like Jack on Hoybier for the second goal. So did it feel like basically maybe on this particular occasion everything just came together very nicely, which might not do on other occasions? Yeah, 100% that's true. Uh, and there will be afternoons and, and more afternoons than not where it doesn't happen like that. I completely agree with you. But I think it's probably worth slightly parking that cynicism for now on the basis that Arsenal have failed to turn up in big games plenty of times before and failed to turn up in North London derbies plenty of times before. And I think more importantly, allowed the occasion to kind of overcome them, particularly someone like Xhaka who has this kind of urge to be involved and can overstep the line doing so. I thought more than 
their passing and movement, their control of the game and their discipline in controlling the game in the first half was was like something we haven't seen from Arsenal in a while. So I, I completely agree with you, Sash, but I don't think that necessarily means we shouldn't praise them for this individual performance. They've been tough fixtures as well. What, Norwich, Burnley and a Spurs side who I, I read ranked statistically <laughs> as the worst in so many categories in the Premier League. And this in a league which Norwich are off to the worst star historically, the top flight well, this version of the top flight has ever seen, that's, that's quite some going. But hey, maybe Arsenal made them look this bad. I guess we'll see. There'll be further evidence in as, as Arsenal go forward. But, but what about Spurs then? Uh, Colin, you wrote that before Sunday, Tottenham's performance at Crystal Palace was the most concerned you'd ever been about a Premier League side, but they comfortably outdid that at the Emirates. This, this, this sort of rhythm that they've had now where they conceded nine goals without, without uh, scoring in the Premier League across those three games... Now, they conceded three goals in 22 minutes on Sunday, which is slightly better than the three goals in 17 minutes they conceded against Crystal Palace. And they conceded three goals in 43 minutes against Chelsea in the second half. So this sort of pattern keeps repeating itself, whereby they very quickly lose control of the games. And I think quite a big part of that is is the midfield. There was just no shape to to the midfield in the first half on Sunday whatsoever. There was this huge gap between the defence and the attack, and I'm not sure what the message was to the players before the game, what, what the game plan was, but I think Gary Neville um, said on the Sky Sports commentary that it just looked like the players didn't believe in what, what they were being told to do. There was no there, there was no sort of justification for what was going on, and there was no there was no intent, there was no belief, and Arsenal really, really took advantage of that, but it is a, it is a pattern that's repeating itself at Spurs, and I wonder how much sort of authority a manager will have whenever a club had such a prolonged search over the summer. It was months rather than days. And Nuno was at best fifth choice for Tottenham. So you kind of think, well, if the players are following that, they're thinking, well, well what, what is it that the club wants from the manager? What is it the manager wants us to do? And that's before we even get into the Harry Kane situation. So I think there's, a, there's maybe a lack of authority at the minute and players just haven't bought in to what the message is. And I think you could see that on Sunday. And it, again, yeah, it was a very worrying performance. The other thing briefly to say is that Spurs weren't missing a whole host of players. Steven Bergwijn was injured. He might have started, but probably wouldn't. Ryan Sessegnon was, was out. He, he wouldn't have started. All four of their summer signings were on the bench. This is the squad. You know, this is as good as it gets for Tottenham. The, you know, they weren't lacking, you know, I mean, they were lacking Harry Kane in that he was absolutely dire, but this is as good as it's going to get for Nuno. The, these are the players of which he has to build his future as manager of Tottenham Hotspur around. And if this is it, then that's more worrying still. You know, there are clubs in the Premier League, like Leeds, for example, who have quite a few injuries and you can mitigate the criticism because of that. You can't do that with Tottenham. This is it now. Mm. Kane was dire. Die got caned. And all this coming just 16 days after manager... Nuno Espirito Santo, one manager of the month. FBL Banger podcast says, hey, nice sneaking in a reference there. Uh, just curious, has manager of the month ever been sacked the month after they won the award? Producer Charlie went digging for you, FBL Banger. Uh, no, Daniel, you're nodding. Do you know the answer to this? Yeah, well, Charlie and I had a frank discussion about this before the show. So, yeah, okay. Brian McDermott is your, is your gold answer, who is sacked as Reading manager. I think Danny Wilson is the bonus. Danny Wilson, yeah. February 2000. 
But that was manager of the month for January, but sacked in March. Actually, they were both January, March. Mm. Ooh, four Sheffield MPs, including David Blunkett, had called for Danny Wilson's dismissal. That seems a bit harsh. What had he done, poor chap? Just not been a very good football manager, I think, at the time. I, mean, I see. Casting no aspersions on the rest of his career. All right. Well, anyway, OK, so Spurs have major issues. Uh, Arsenal have the youngest winning lineup in a North London derby in Premier League history and one of the youngest lineups, whatever the result, ever seen in, in the fixture. Are Arsenal making a bid for relevance again? I, I think um, we'll need to see a bit more evidence um, uh, for this. But certainly after three defeats at the start of the season, which were kind of always on against they promoted Brentford plus two difficult games against you know the favourites. Um, We'll see how how far this confidence takes them. I mean, what I'm really curious about um, in my um, semi-professional capacity as as the goalkeeper watcher is uh, the dynamic around Aaron Ramsdale, um, because I'm a big fan of Leno, and I think maybe he got a little bit arsenaled, and you could see the confidence draining at the start of this season from from him. But the way Ramsdale came in, he seems to have. Amongst other things, and there, there, he made a couple of errors in, in in the game against Spurs, which um, which he kind of got away with, uh, you know, including that pass for the two 0 Plus, you know, he got caught in no man's land when Kane was through. But he almost comes in and he re-energizes the back line. If anything, like I look at the demeanor between Leno and Ramsdale, you know, Ramsdale just shouts a lot and you know, gets everyone up, gets everyone more focused. And I'm I'm beginning to wonder whether this was something as basic as that that Arsenal have been lacking so far because so many Arsenal games you watch uh, in the past they kind of, sort of just drift through them. No one really wants to take control. The older guys are a bit like, come on. The younger guys have lost the confidence. You know, Smith Rowe tries to play, but there is no like there's no big voice. Whereas you're watching Ramsdale and some of it, you know, looked at you know he made that late save against Moore, which was fantastic and it looked a little bit demented afterwards. But perhaps maybe this is the minor bit of energy that that. that that you need for for suddenly that backline to feel that there is, you know, that there is a presence behind them. Perhaps with Leno, um, you know, not all goalkeepers are shouty types. Perhaps with Leno, they just kind of seeped away. And um, I'm sort of so far very impressed with Ramsdale. I think what's also interesting last couple of games, they're noticeably going longer. I looked at his passing stats. I think half half the balls now going to the opposition half. This is definitely what they weren't doing until recently. So I'm wondering whether it's because Leno couldn't. Long to his Leno's distribution wasn't good enough, or whether Ramsdale's distribution is that good that they're confident that he will hit those percentage balls up the pitch and then they'll be able to win them up there. So, um, I mean, in, in terms of what I'm most interested in now is that how that backline is going to function going forward, including the goalkeeper. Ramsdale's kind of half goalkeeper, half hype man at the moment, but everything he does, he does these huge fist pumps. He, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's high-fiving teammates. He's every time he has a drink, he, he gives it to the crowd and applauds them, and they rise. He, he's not stupid. Like he knows there was some doubt and there was some pressure upon him, um, and he also knows that Arsenal supporters will be forever reaching out for heroes. And he seems to have really intelligently bought into that by kind of making him this sort of cult hero, fans' favourite already, without really having to do that much so far. I think it's worth pointing out as well that Arsenal only scored two goals in their first five matches and obviously Sunday was a, was a huge deviation from that and, and I know there's a lot of praise and rightly so for Emil Smith-Rowe and Bakayo Saka but Martin Odegaard, the signing of Martin Odegaard I think is really significant because he, he really links everything up and the moves flow through him and we sort of spoke about how Arsenal played with such pace and precision and that's exactly what he brings to the team and I think he's a really, really significant signing for them and I think going forwards this season, I think goals might might be a problem but they looked so free-flowing on Sunday that if they can replicate that and if they can keep Odegaard in that sort of floating free role 
I think I think they'll they'll do quite well. Mm. Well, for now they move into the top half of the table above Tottenham Hotspur on goal difference. And as long as all those players stay fit, who knows what we might see from Arteta's side. Next up, the very impressive Man City. So, Mr. Biasa, what's troubling you? Well, Doctor, my translator is constantly undermining me. Last week I told everyone to take five and get an ice cream, but he told them to run laps and practice their shooting. Sometimes it seems they don't know what they're doing, but with Paddy Power you always know you're getting top draw rewards. If one leg of your bet builder on a football game lets you down, get your money back as a free bet. Paddy Power! Pretty much bet builder bets only max free bet £10 per day. Excludes enhanced match odds. Min four plus legs, min odds one fifth per leg. Online exclusive T's and C's apply. 18 plus become This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Chelsea Neil, Man City won Saturday lunchtime. Sasha, you went to the bridge as part of this doubleheader. What did you witness there? I witnessed um, a hugely impressive City performance, um, sort of reminiscent uh, maybe of the performance four years ago, perhaps in its significance, because I think four years ago when they went to Stamford Bridge uh, to play the champions, won one nil, but they were they absolutely bossed it, and then they went on that winning run whereby they won the league and you know got hundred points and stuff. That was the, was sort of the fluid city that time. This time I thought it was quite significant. It was like the hugely impressive pressing city. It absolutely suffocated Chelsea in the first half. I think, and this is one of the reasons I think when the crowd, the crowd didn't really get going until the second half because there was really nothing to shout about. So you had that on the one hand, and on the other hand, I saw Chelsea try to play an unfamiliar formation to them, a three-five-two, against um, a very well against an excellent opponent, against a title contender. And what happened was that the front two got so obviously cut off, Werner uh, and Lukaku. It was quite painful to watch. Um, Tuchel was going absolutely nuts from about 20 minutes onwards, pretty much for the rest of the game, because I think he felt that there was a gap behind the front two, and one of, I think, Kovacic or Kante, probably most more Kovacic, had to push into that. Second half, Werner tried to cover the space, but what we ended up having was Rodri had probably the best game of his City time, because he had all this space to just control, like he could step out whenever he wanted. Chelsea could never break out, because as soon as the ball went forward behind the front two, someone, like Rodri was pretty much there to sweep it up, or the ball would go to City. So Chelsea were basically stuck, front two cut off, and they never really got around that problem. Yes, they put Havertz on with 30 minutes to go, but by then I think the game was already drifting away from Chelsea. So I think on the one hand, I think it's the first time that Tuchel evidently didn't get the message to his players for me, and on the other hand, City really really turned, turned it on. All right, Gabriel Jesus with the goal eight minutes into the second half. He's now been involved in seven goals uh, directly in his last seven starts for Man City in the Premier League. Could have been more City's winning margin if it wasn't for Edouard Mendy. Uh, are you suggesting, uh, Sash, that this time around it was Tuchel that did a pep tactics-wise? Well, I think he was sort of forced into it because I like a game like this, I can't, you know, if Mount's fit, I can't really see him not mm. playing this. I mean, I can understand, you know, that he could be a little bit reactive and trying to, trying to protect himself with three central midfielders. But at the same time, you know, he can't not see the fact that he needs a linking player be- between the midfield and, and, and the front two. So I think it was, it was in a way it was enforced, but, you know, hindsight, whatever, like I would have started with Harvest. I would have trusted him that role. Well, especially after his impact in the previous meeting, it, it had been three defeats in a row for Pep against Thomas Tuchel. But as he said afterwards, you learn from your mistakes. What exactly was the lesson that he drew apart from smother them? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think 
I think the intensity of that press had to be as good as it was against Chelsea, albeit they weren't necessarily set up to counter-attack. I think the other thing they did well is that they defended brilliantly. There weren't any of those sloppy mistakes. You know, quite often in those City performances, something happens that creates a moment of danger for themselves through their own, you know, through their own fault. And it's normally, I think, especially in the games where they control possession, it's normally an issue of concentration. Whereas, as Sasha rightly says, Rodri was so good at not just with the ball, but just every time something happened, the concentration was spot on every time. He was straight to where it needed to be, whether it was drifting out right, whether it was left, whether it was dropping deep. And he basically controlled the temper of that game. I did think it, it sounds very inflammatory, but I, I, when I looked at the teams, I thought, imagine if Gareth Southgate had picked three central defenders, two wingbacks and three ostensibly defensive midfielders against a team and lost 1-0 without having a shot on target. I, would, I mean, he would have... Tuchel's done more than Southgate in the game I, I appreciate that but yeah I do think he did a pair I think he got it completely wrong um, because that sort of system only works if you score the first goal to my mind because Chelsea's one problem under Tuchel is that they're not particularly good at getting back into matches I think they've lost four of the last five in which they've conceded the first goal and with that team it's really hard to change the course of the game once you've gone behind because you're effectively having to replace two or three players just to do it which causes its own problems so yeah I think he got it completely wrong What really interested me about the tactical aspect of this game was that the previous week uh, City had struggled so much against Southampton they didn't have their first shot on, on target until I think it was the last minute but what Southampton had done they hadn't they hadn't sat back and, and tried to soak up lots of pressure they, they'd, they'd been really proactive they played a high defensive line they tried to sort of cut off City's attacks at source from the base of the midfield and it was really really effective and I mean, I appreciate that Thomas Tuchel and Ralph, Ralph Hasenhut will have different approaches a lot of the time and, and a lot maybe the absence of Mason Mount forced, forced Tuchel's hand here. But I was surprised just to see them set up in, in such a way where they invited so much pressure early on and it was wave after wave of City attack. They, they, they probably should have won this by, by much more than one goal. But I think another, another aspect of Chelsea was to mention Mason Mount there. In, in Mount's last 20 matches for Chelsea in England, he hasn't, he hasn't scored uh, and I think he only provided three assists, but I think that what you saw on Saturday was just how important he is to these teams in terms of how he kind of leads the press whenever they're they're getting forward and how he links up the midfield and attack. And I know that Chelsea had a couple of other creative players who, who didn't start on, on Saturday, which I was a little bit surprised by, but I, I really think that, that Mount's absence, it kind of shows why he's so highly valued um, by Chelsea and, and Chelsea fans, especially always raving about him. And, and you can you can see that whenever he's not playing, that they really do miss him. I, th- I think also with Mount, um, he has the intelligence in games like this to find to find spaces where he can be more effective. And I think this is what Lukaku and Werner basically didn't. I mean, they, they stayed very central. Okay, part of it might, might, might have come from the manager, but they stayed very central. Um, they... Uh, they didn't really know how to drop back, and they didn't really like think of a way to change to change to change how the game was going, how they were being marked out of the game. Also, I think with Werner as well, he nearly got away in about 15 minutes from a, from an Alonso pass, and then he kind of just stopped. Uh, or it felt like he stopped. He he seemed to uh, have been unable um, to use that pace of his at all, which which, which I found found rather striking. So yeah, I think game like this you need you need someone with intelligence of mouth I think it's been mentioned here before that you know that's one of the reasons why the managers love him so much if there is a change up he understands very quickly what needs to be done and a game like this they needed that brain on that pitch I think Sasha you did a little dance when Daniel was eulogising Rodri's performance mm. 
What, what I was I, I was pointing like how, how he was moving out, how he was moving out here and there and everywhere. That was um, it was just I, I was trying to mimic his movement. Different directions, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A living heat map. Uh, interesting. <laughs> so that, uh, City now haven't conceded in the Premier League since Sun's winner in the opening game of the season. That's a run of over eight hours. Crikey. It's the fewest number of goals, brackets one, that City have ever conceded at this stage of a league season. They are one point behind Liverpool at the top of the table, level with Chelsea and Everton and Man United. Midweek, Chelsea go to Turin to face Juventus, who have had now two straight wins, everybody. Both pretty nervy, though. Uh, They went behind against Spezia midweek, but came back for a victory there. They held on against Sampdoria Sunday morning, 3-2 win, but lost, and this might be crucial, Paolo Dybala. Who'd scored a brilliant opening goal. So, yeah, Juve not in the best of shape. As for Man City, they'll be heading off to Paris Saint-Germain on Tuesday. We'll speak to Julian Laurence about that later. And, of course, the Tuesday Tony Football Show European Edition will feature loads of European fixture preview stuff. City then after the trip to Paris, as part of this incredible triumvirate of, of uh, away fixtures, will be visiting Anfield. We'll talk about Liverpool, Sash, if you will, next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. With Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is handy for when Spurs stop pretending to be this ruthless winning machine and revert back to type. Ready for the fast bit? Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet, £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. It's over 18s only. And please, gamble responsibly. Great ball in towards Tony, who's just on the stretch. Will it fall here for Vissa? He's got there! He's got there! He has done what he was sent on to do! The substitute has come up with a big goal! And for the second time in this match, Brentford bounce back! Brentford 3, Liverpool 3. Don't get greedy at Gisal TV. Says the Brentford versus Liverpool game was just jolly good fun. Does it even need analysis? Can't we just enjoy football sometimes? Sasha, did you enjoy your football at the Brentford Community Stadium thing? You know, it feels like at the moment it's not possible not to enjoy football at Brentford. Um, every game, I mean, I've only been to two of the three home games so far. It's like a party. Um, and uh, obviously it helps when the team, uh, you know, delivers the results. But at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, the crowd and the team really feed off each other in this. In, in, in this. And it does really generally feel uh, like there is a connection there. And against Liverpool, they... They just they a they first of all they spooked Liverpool uh, early doors uh, with by having like about three chances in about a minute, which ended up uh, with Matip clearing off his line. At that stage, Liverpool tried to you know settle the game down. Then it looked like Liverpool were in more and more control. And at three two, I thought they're going to see the game out. And then obviously Thomas Frank gambles uh, by putting on an extra uh, wide player, and it pays off. But the thing is, like at that stage, physically, I don't think Brentford could get back into the game. But mentally, they just believe in the process, believe in the system, and they just they just carried on playing. They, you know, I was looking like late stages of a game like this. 
you had two teams effectively lining up with the front line of four, and it just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Of course, Liverpool, this was a game where a 3-5-2 for Brentford worked brilliantly, and this is their system, hardly ever changes. They clearly understand what they're doing. So, for example, Tony and Mbemo, had much better idea of what they were supposed to be doing than Lukaku and Werner earlier in the day. Midfielders um, stepped up well to help them as well. Nurgaard, I thought, was excellent, but knackered by the end because there's so much work to do. So they they understood what they had to do. They were also aggressive, but aggressive in a good way. Aggressive, not just kicking mm. people, but really getting in the face of Liverpool, really giving the Liverpool centre-backs a lot of issues. Having said that, Van Dijk kind of knocked Tony out of the game, so Tony went to be basically play against Matty. But also, like the overall impression was that this was just a beautiful, you know, afternoon of football, afternoon evening of football. Uh, you'd never wanted it to stop. I think Brentford were good for the good value for the three three, but at the same time, Liverpool could walk away thinking we should have won six three. So, like, uh, I think it's the game of the season for me so far. Mm, part of the reason Liverpool didn't win six three. Was David Rea, no? As, you know, a goalkeeper yourself, what would you make of him? Let's save on Jota. Because, I mean, initially, I think the key there, and, you know, what goalkeepers train all the time, is you need to get up after the first shot, which is effectively what he did, but also to be able to react in this situation. I don't know what his half reaction, probably mostly instinct, but the fact is he got up after a deflected shot off the post. You're quite disorientated and... You know, the striker is yards away from you. And to be able to do that, I mean, it looks magnificent. And it also gives everyone such a massive lift. This is one of the reasons, I think, again, why the crowd got going. It's not just the goals. So it's, it's save like Raya's. It's also, um, I think, Aya's goal line clearance in the first few minutes. That really got the crowd up for it. And th- this is when Brentford reacted and went down the other end and started creating loads of chances. And when you have players like Tony, who is absolutely brilliant and, like, just tireless worker throughout the whole game and with other players who understand what they're supposed to be doing it's like it's like the whole thing the, the synthesis of this beautiful football vision is absolutely wonderful and you know it's a small stadium <clears throat> it's it's a crowd that effectively doubled since their usual capacity in previous seasons but like it like everyone buys into it but one thing that's quite curious i mean they brentford and i understand why this happens you know fans and the manager all talk about you know a small club being in the big time in a way, you could argue that sometimes how they go direct, they maybe play a bit like a small club, but the, the attitude is certainly not small club. The attitude is that they can go out and play and beat everybody. And the attitude is they're not just going to lie down and lose 5-0. I can't see this team this team doing it because they will carry on going towards them. The manager keeps thinking towards them. They will gamble. You know, like when, when you try to overload Trent Alexander-Arnold, you are losing players in other parts of the pitch. But that there is a reason for it because Klopp switches, leaves two midfielders on. And, he, and you know, Frank goes, oh, I don't need actually a new in the midfield anymore as well. I can go more di- even more direct. So it kind of, it all makes sense. There's constantly thinking process. And also, I love towards the end, Liverpool had a very late chance, deep in injury time. I think it was a deflection of, but maybe even Janssen that, you know, Raya clawed away. And Frank and Klopp just looked at each other and went, and they clearly enjoyed the game themselves as well, despite the fact that, you know, for Klopp, this wasn't the perfect result. And, you know, afterwards, he was full of admiration for how Brentford played. He said maybe they didn't adapt so well when the ball was in the air. But he also, you know, bumped into Tony when they were doing the, you know, post-match interviews. And they stopped and it was a really warm handshake. They had a lovely little chat for maybe half a minute. And it was just, it was a general atmosphere of extreme goodness around the whole thing. Extraordinary, Sasha. Now breathe. Uh, Daniel, you spoke to... (laughs) No, no, brilliant. I mean, I, I'm delighted that, that you enjoyed it. I and mean, what, a, what a game to go to. Danny, you, you had a lovely chat with uh, Ivan Tony last week, didn't you? Uh, full of really charming details, like his mum doing screenshots of, of him on Sky Premier League graphics next to 
Mo Salah and going, look, it's you next to Mo Salah. Yeah, and, yeah. She, yeah. Would, she would message him and so would say, yes, uh, I, I used to change the nappies of one of these two people, which I really liked. <laughs> um, yeah, he was, he, it was, interestingly, he was, he was talking in the interview about looking forward to facing Virgil van Dijk. He, he grew up as a Liverpool fan. Um, but but Sash is right. They they actually changed that tack because he wasn't getting much change out of Van Dyke. And when they were going direct, the, as soon as he went on to Joel Matip, I think Matip won something like thirty five percent of his headers, and Van Dyke won sixty percent of his. And as soon as Tony went on to Matip and started winning those headers, Liverpool were were in a little bit of a, a little bit of trouble, as, as Sasha says. Oh, what about Mo Salah, Sash? becoming the fastest player in Liverpool history to reach 100 goals for the club in the top division. That's faster than Roger Hunt, than Michael Owen, Kenny Dalglish, Sheehan Rush, Robbie Fowler. Salah, is he now, although he's not a striker per se, is he now in the conversation for Liverpool's greatest striker ever, Sash? Well, he's certainly, in terms of consistency, um, I was thinking about this uh, this morning. Um, like I saw his first game for Liverpool, and it also finished 3-3. And he also scored. And he also should have had a hat-trick. Um, that was at Watford. Um, Liverpool also conceded a late equaliser. Um, and, yeah, again, I walk away from Saturday and think oh, he could have had a hat-trick. Um, but at the same time, the great benefit of watching someone like that close up is you can just see how great he is in terms of ball control, intelligence, movement, tenacity. Like, he's now, like, he was he was at times auxiliary right back. He would track back back and forth. He was also exploiting the space in front of him. Yes, perhaps, you know, he, he could have made it 4-2, and, and he didn't. But again, but with Salah, you can't complain about stuff like that because he's constantly there. He's constantly a thorn. You can, the moment you relax, you end up with a goal that Brentford conceded. It's just a, a moment, you know, like a, a, a split second, the defender in front of him switches off, and he's right, right in behind or doesn't step up, or the other side doesn't step up. So, he's... Um, in terms of the consistency of contribution, like of the last four years, I don't think I've seen anything like it because, you know, Fowler was my idol when I was growing up. But, you know, he had that injury. He had perhaps three, three and a half brilliant seasons. What we're seeing from Salah now is just is, is just astonishing. I know there's like some sort of a contract negotiation at the moment and stuff like that. But I think Liverpool must do all they can to keep him uh, because he is he is the best player and he's the best player in one of the best Liverpool teams in history. OK, so if you were doing your all-time... Liverpool best eleven from history. Who would Salah get into it? Uh, I think so. Yeah, um, I think because he is also, you know, if if you look at all those guys at the, at, at the top of the list, they, he is kind of a wide forward, if you like. He is the sort of player that, uh, for example, City are going to have to think about next week because he, he does something that that Chelsea forwards don't do. Uh, so if I were to play a four three three in my historical team, I think yeah, he'd get a place in that. Okay. Would anyone else from this Liverpool side get in? I think Alisson, Van Dijk, and Salah. Yeah, I, th- I think they have a really good shot of being in in, in in the greatest ever teams. But there is, but everyone contributes. You know, on, on Saturday you had Curtis Jones, who I think did a remarkable job in midfield. And you know, it's again those three individuals don't make a team. The team makes the team. And I think that's Klopp's right. mantra. It always has been. Right. Okay. Sorry. Don't get greedy. We ended up analysing uh, that game. Next up, let's just try and enjoy the pure thrill of Villa's rare away win at Old Trafford and United not so rare defeat. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
We're sponsored for this episode of the Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Man United nil, Aston Villa won. Courtney Hauser, who came in for the ineligible Axel Twanzibi, heading in from a corner with two minutes to go. Then, as Dan foretold on this podcast just last Thursday, Hauser gave away a penalty for United, blocking Cavani's header with his hand. Bruno Fernandes, not Ronaldo, stepped up. A superb once again from uh, Emmy Martinez, the Villa goalkeeper, who's surely now football's spot kick sledger supreme, standing next to Bruno, but pointing at Ronaldo and urging him, come on, you take this kick, you take this kick. He got in his head, surely. Anyway, Fernandez, who's got a brilliant record from the spot, blazes it over, and it's a Villa victory. Crikey. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think should credit Villa because we're probably about to pour some score on Manchester United and it's fully merited. But they, they Dean Smith is probably seen, I think, slightly unfairly as one of these sort of old school coaches, English managers. But he appointed a, a, a set piece coach in the summer called Austin McPhee, who had worked at, at FC Mecheland and elsewhere. And after they beat Newcastle, he, he credited McPhee with coming up the routine that enabled Danny Ings to score a, a fabulous overhead kick. I mean, he, he didn't plan the overhead kick, obviously, but he planned the routine that led to it. And again, I think the the goal that wins it on on Saturday is is the same because he Hauser stands very close to De Gea, and I think De Gea probably assumes he's going to kind of challenge him for the ball. And just as the corner is about to be delivered, he sprints ahead of that front post, and by the time anyone's reacted, he's already flicked the ball, and and De Gea is kind of back on his heels. And these kind of things make a difference. Um, you know, it might only be three or four goals or three or four points a season, but that's can be worth millions to a club like Villa. So, yeah, I just thought it's worth praising them before we inevitably and rightly pile on Manchester United. I, I mean, a United iconic ask, can any of the very smart pod members explain to me what Ollie's tactics actually are? But, I mean, I would say no. I don't think any of any of you can. I know that, Colin, you, you said United were diabolical both individually and collectively, but... But but what about Villa? What about John John McGinn, who Andy Lang says on his current form, would he start for every team in the Premier League? He's such a unique player and so effective in big games for club and country. For me, explain what does John McGinn do that's so special? 
Uh, John McGinn was fantastic on Saturday's game, and I think the energy that he brings to the midfield um, is so crucial. And he set he sets the tone. He sets the tone with crunching challenges, and he gets the crowd going. He gets his teammates going, and he get and he gets attacks flowing through that. And Aston Villa was so good on on, on Saturday, and I think it is right to acknowledge that. Um, I think they deserved the victory in terms of they created every single big chance, bar, bar the last minute penalty. Um, I, and I think again it's worth noting that yes Austin McPhee um, who came in as, as the set piece coach he was someone who was incredibly highly valued in the Northern Ireland setup under Michael O'Neill and, and obviously Northern Ireland's success through that period as, as, as I'll know were, were very heavily based on set pieces and that again that's what won the game but I mean Manchester United they weren't that bad in, in the first half and I think what happened was the Luke Shaw injury uh, really disrupted how how they set up and how they approach the game. Um, and again, this is this is always the question mark that hangs over Solskjaer for me. It's not so much in terms of how he sets up his team. Certainly, certainly on an individual basis, I, I don't think there's major concerns over that. I think the the bigger question mark is how he reacts to in game moments. And I think that was quite clear in the defeated young boys when Aaron Bissaka got sent off. And United just didn't know how to respond. And again on Saturday, Luke Shaw's injury. So many of United's attacks flow through Luke Shaw. He gets forward and he provides the width and he provides crosses into the area that, that they can attack. And whenever Diego Diego Dallo came on to replace Shaw, um, he's not left-footed at all. And, and every time United gave him the ball, he, he advanced into the, into the opponent's half. And then you could tell that he wasn't confident to keep pushing forward. So he cut back inside on his right foot. And there wasn't a, a forward passing angle, and that happened so many times. And again, you kind of think United just didn't find a solution to the problem that had presented itself within the game. And yeah, you can make excuses for the Shaw injury. You can make excuses that Maguire um, got substituted off as well through injury, and the defence was just couldn't build from the back at all. But they were just so disjointed, and that's just been the case so many times in in the early weeks of the season. I, I do think they will they will improve, and I do think that. That there are excuses that you could make in that sense, but but Solskjaer needs to get it right pretty fast. Um, and I made the point as well that I think this is the first season whereby a lot of the criticism is, is merited in the sense that this is a United squad who should be challenging for major honours. They should be challenging for, for the league title. They should be challenging in Europe. And three defeats and four, just it's just not good enough. And, and the, the underlying signs have been there. Right, the first of those three defeats in four was in the Champions League, their opening group stage match against Young Boys. This week they have Villarreal paying them a visit at Old Trafford. Luke Shaw and Harry Maguire both limping off on Saturday. No Aaron Wan-Bissaka either, presumably after his red card in the game away in Switzerland. So major issues there as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer tries to put together his defence for that game. And Villarreal, what kind of form are they in as they, as they uh, head to Manchester, Colin? Uh, well, they, they, they picked up a very good point against Real Madrid on uh, on Saturday night. It was a nil-nil draw. But Villarreal are a very strange team. They're very, very hard to beat, incredibly difficult to beat. And they've drawn almost every game this season. They beat Elche last seven week. Seven draws in nine, yeah. yeah. Yeah, seven draws in nine. And you, you can even include the, the Europa League final against United, which was technically a draw. Obviously, the Super Cup against Chelsea, that was a draw. And it's um it's this strange pattern whereby they as I said they're they're very difficult to beat they're they're very well structured as we know with any Unai Emery side but they are they are quite conservative um they're they're risk averse um and we saw obviously in the Europa League final United really struggled to deal with that um to sort of create holes and find space in the final third and 
you kind of think, well, will they be able to do that on in this midweek game? And yeah, the pressure's on after they defeated Young Boys and Atlanta in that group as well. It's a really interesting group because it's not obvious. It's not. It's not the one that stands out as having lots of historic European clubs, but. At the same time, it's a really interesting mix and it's a test for Solskjaer. And I think, as I said earlier, that you know, if if United were to go out of this Champions League group, I, I think that there will be very that there'll be a decision that might need to be taken by the club at at, at that point. Should that happen again? Because it, it obviously last last season there was a slight mitigating factor that you had Paris Saint Germain, you had RB Leipzig, but this repeating this repeating sort of factor that that. that that they just struggle to compete at, at this level, um, and again, it'll be it'll be a test. And as I said, the pressure's on to win. All right, currently bottom of the group, of course. Can I just ask uh, what the guys think about you know Cristiano Ronaldo's contribution or, or, or lack of it? Um, because first of all, I think if Solskjaer is building a team, and suddenly Cristiano Ronaldo turns up, and I think that changes uh, things the way he he's going to look at the way team plays. Then also, I seem to get the impression that Cristiano Ronaldo is cramping uh, Bruno Fernandes' style. I mean, Bruno Fernandes issuing an apology, you know, for missing a penalty. I was like, what? And also, I think, you know, in terms of running the dressing room, you know, from what I've seen of Bruno Fernandes so far, I think he, I, I think he dominated the dressing room. Of, of course, he can't with Ronaldo anymore. So, is Ronaldo's arrival actually seriously disruptive? Because again, then you, when you try to play against Villarreal, if they play like they did uh, on Saturday, they'll never break through. It's going to be nil-nil. I think if they had a, a better, counterintuitively, I think if they had a better manager, then Ronaldo might be slightly more disruptive to the team in terms of tactical approach. Because I think, if you, I think United's best team without Ronaldo in it would be Bruno Fernandes playing kind of number ten role, Mason Greenwood or Cavani central striker, Sancho right, and you know, and Rashford or left when fit, but. I think because they don't have any obvious, you know, there's no obvious plan there. There's no cohesion there. There's, it's, it's not obvious what they're trying to do. They don't really get players wide. They they just end up shuttling the ball back and hoping that some individual produces. Actually, I think that probably fits Ronaldo more. I take your point, Sasha, in that I, I think he probably will ruin some moves by demanding the ball. But I, I have no faith that Manchester United are a cohesive team, under attacking team under, under Solskjaer. And therefore... I think you might, if, you, if that's how you're going to be, you might as well have the best individuals and just hope they work mm. it out. And Ronaldo is certainly one of those. He was very good and, and stood aside as, as Bruno had his ill-fated spot kick. And yeah, one can project forward into the future who might be taking penalties in, in future. We shall see. Anyway, there you go. That's that's Man United defeated. Well done, Villa. Looking forward to seeing Villa Real. And uh, ooh, next up, let's round up some of the other action from the weekend in the Premier League. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. It's 27th of September, listener. As you're no doubt thinking to yourself, wasn't it on this day in 2003 that Wimbledon played their first home league match at the National Hockey Stadium in Milton Keynes? They drew 2-2 with Burnley. They didn't actually change their name from Wimbledon despite relocating to Milton Keynes uh, until the start of the following season. And it was also on this day... In 2016, the Big Sam's tenure as England manager came to its sudden end. This morning, five years ago, a newspaper, doing air quotes here, had published its sting, you know, with the pint of wine and all that. And he was gone by the end of the day. Crikey. It was uh, Sam who gave Mikel Antonio his first call-up to the England squad. That's part of the Big Sam England legacy. Anyway, moving back to this weekend, other results were 
Leeds getting beaten 2-1 at Adam Road by West Ham. 35 shots in that game, by the way. That's about average for a Leeds game, but but anyway. Uh, Watford drew 1-1 with Newcastle. Everton beat Norwich 2-0. Leicester were held 2-2 by Burnley. And Wolves got the victory away at Saints. So, we've still got five winless teams. Norwich, Burnley, Leeds, Newcastle and Southampton. Grant us five teams with no wins, six games in. Is that unusual? What's going on? Well, it is actually the second time ever. What what is what is going on? Do you think any anyone got a theory on this? I actually uh, was was looking at, at the the similar point of last season after six matches, and and there were four teams who were who were already caught adrift. Um, and that that set in very early. West Brom had three points. Uh, at Fulham, Sheffield United, and Burnley all had one point each. And actually, the six points that they had gotten between themselves in the first six games, five of those points had been in games against each other. So they, they all, they all made really slow starts. And obviously, for certainly for Sheffield United and, and for West Brom, that was a, that was a sign of, of things to come. And Burnley did their did their usual uh, trick of, of, of finding finding form during the season. But I wouldn't I wouldn't have quite the same concerns over the teams who haven't won yet. I think you look at that list; it includes. Southampton, um, who, who've had some very impressive performances, been unlocking up the win. Newcastle, who really, really should have won on Saturday at Watford. And obviously Leeds as well. I think those teams will will come good. Um, but, they, I mean, of, of course, the, the one the one sort of team that stands out above all is, is North City at the minute. And they just... they Yeah, yeah. I think I, I don't think it's anything new to say that, that they're really, really struggling at the moment. And again, it's, it's almost like a repeat of their, of their campaign two seasons ago. Mm-hmm. Norwich, bottom of the pile. Only three of their players have ever scored a Premier League goal. Pookie, Cantwell and McLean. Everton, who beat them, question here from I am Duncan Smith, who says, are Everton actually having a good start or is it that they've played seven teams they're expected to beat on their budget and won five of them? How about Andres Townsend, though? He's been a remarkable story. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the insinuation in the question that they've played four of the, the current bottom six and three of those at home. Uh, it's the first time since 1989 that Everton have won their first three home league games of a season. But as I say, they are against three of the bottom six. But I think if if you'd have told Everton supporters six months ago that they would they would be playing a home game in September in the Premier League with a starting front four of Alex Awobi, Salomon Rondon, Andros Townsend and Damari Gray, they'd have probably wondered what the heck had happened over at Goodison over the summer because, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin... Richarlison, there are players there who should be in Everton's first team. And I think, therefore, we need to give Benitez a little bit of credit that they've managed this run. They're only a point off the top of the league, as as we record, given the absences. Because the other thing to, that's pretty pertinent in that is that Carlo Ancelotti lost to three of the bottom four at home last season as Everton manager. So it's not as if they were blowing teams away last season um, at home at the bottom of the league. So, yeah, I think he needs a little bit of credit for it. Great stat. Leeds slipping into the relegation zone. Should they be concerned? I think I think against West Ham, I mean, yeah, it's always a ding-dong with, with Leeds, but the way they lost that game was, was quite unfortunate um, because, you know, the, the, the deflection of the uh, Boeing cross... Um, that can kind of changes the dynamic of the game for me, um, and uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I just thought in this particular situation they were, they were unfortunate. However, I don't know with Bielsa, you always 
there is always the fear: are they reaching a saturation point of Bielsa at some point? Um, can they be too? As we saw in Bielsa's previous jobs, you know, suddenly after a couple of seasons, there becomes too much Bielsa. So it's it's be interesting how this goes forward. But of course, in this particular game, I think they were with um, they were without Bamford. They do have certain key players they rely on, and um, maybe not such not such a huge squad. Uh, but at the same time, I have to say. Um, Antonio after the game um I don't know do many strikers count their goals and like know as much how, how many they've scored in recent games because he was like scored six and six I'm having a great time and he was just uh you were just do, really the, the dude I mean the, 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 stuff. they used to anyway but, but in, in it's, it's quite rare that in a post-match interview he kind of reels off all these stats and he's clearly enjoying all these goals and like keeping the run going and he's having a fantastic start of the season so I think Antonio is 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 a extremely aware of his own kind of significance oh, yeah. and prominence uh, as his recent goal celebration might might, might suggest <laughs> but I mean, it, it always fan. helps when you dig yourself up but I think um, mm. the way he took the chance in the last minute and clearly he saw exactly what he needed to do and I thought yeah that's it, it is it was great to see that confidence because the way he put it away there's absolutely no doubt and you know I think when a striker is in form I think yeah, he's allowed to enjoy himself absolutely absolutely uh, lovely to see Ra Jimenez uh, getting a goal again, although not so much for Saints fans. Wolves with a 1-0 win there at St Mary's. Uh, let's have a quick word about the 2-2 draw between Leicester and Burnley. Uh, quite a match this one. You had the Vardy with the own goal. Perhaps his best goal of the game, actually. I don't know. They were all fine. Uh, then he equalises for Leicester. Then Maxwell Corne. Boom. How about that one? But then he goes off injured. And then Vardy earns a point for uh, the Foxes. How is Maxwell Corney? What's the what's the entity of his injury? Sean Dyche charmingly referred to it as nipping his hamstring, which is not a phrase I've heard before and means I have absolutely no idea how long he's going to be out for. I, I, I th- mm. I, my reading between the lines, I think he probably said it was precautionary and therefore not a serious one. Right. What, what an addition he... I mean, th- that was extraordinary seeing... Him pop up with that goal there. I mean, when he transferred there, I think a lot of us were kind of went, hmm, Maxwell Corney to to Burnley, but wow. This this game uh, was was interesting. Uh, certainly, certainly for XG fans because Leicester created over over five times the amount of the of XG that Burnley did, and and and, and again they were they were very fortunate not to lose with with the last minute goal that was marginally ruled out for offside. And uh, this this there's I think there's no question marks about. Leicester City this season and I know it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit harsh but I think you're looking at the past two years whereby they've been in the top four virtually for two seasons running and they miss out on the last day each time um, and obviously they had the, the magnificent FA Cup final success a couple of months ago you kind of start to think how much of of an emotional toll has that taken on on the squad of players on the club because they've they've started this season quite slowly, um, and they're they're dropping points now where they wouldn't before, and you, maybe you just start to think that have they reached the end of this run in terms in terms of just an emotionally they they're they're tired, and they've obviously got the European matches as well. They they had that fantastic Europa League game against Napoli uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they blew the two goal lead. And obviously Napoli are, are a fantastic side, but I wonder in in seasons past would, would that Leicester City have, have thrown the game away in that manner so yeah I, I'm slightly I'm slightly concerned about them because we're always talking about them as the team who can maybe break into the top four um, I'm not I'm not sure that'll be the case this year but then, but then again when you look at that match I think Burnley are exactly 
the sort of team who make things difficult for, for clubs and, and Burnley are almost a contrast to Norwich City that we were talking about but you know Norwich almost make things easy for their opponents they they really struggle to, to make things difficult against teams who, who have more quality than them whereas Burnley are the exact opposite and even though Burnley have only got uh, I think it's two points so far this season they tend to find ways of, of, of picking up victories and, and, and clearing out of that relegation zone so it'll be interesting to see if they can they can start winning games I'm, I'm fascinated at how a Leicester side with possibly the most clinical finisher in uh, that England has right now in Jamie Vardy could have that massive an XG and still not not win. Am I missing something? Yeah, yeah, it's strange. I think I think I think part part of that and part part of XG that might be slightly misleading is that is it teams like Burnley who like to sit so deep and like to soak up a lot of pressure. They they restrict teams to to sort of long range efforts and pot shots and. You can even you could you can make a comparison with the Man United game against Aston Villa this weekend, where United had I think twenty five plus efforts on goal, and quite a few of them were on target, but they, they weren't great clear cut chances, and that's what that sort of factors into it. And that, that's what Burnley Burnley give away very few clear cut opportunities, but they mm. allow their opponents to take a lot of shots from outside the area, and I think that sort of skews those figures a little bit into how we kind of perceive them. There was also part of me watching that game thinking, yeah, typical Burnley. I'm not a huge fan of Burnley this season. I think um, there is a lot of fouling going on. I'm surprised they actually got three yellow cards in this game because um, quite often they seem to go unpunished. Um, I quite enjoy the commentary for the first goal uh, because as Leicester break away, the commentator says, oh, that was a bit heavy on Barnes as Barnes gets completely taken out. Um, <laughs> and I'm actually going to be watching this game again just to see um, the level of physicality from Burnley. A bit of an obsession of mine this season. Um, but also I think um, one thing about the, the first goal as well, I think clearly Jamie Vardy playing in front of a crowd. I think he's, he's basically having the word with the away end, which he's, he really loves enjoy, uh, enjoys doing. And another thing with Burnley as well, I thought Nick Pope was a little bit unconvincing on both goals, particularly the way he rushed out for, uh, for the second one. Uh, I don't think he was getting there. But uh, yeah, in my corner here, I'm not a huge Burnley fan because um, and, I just think they're getting over, overly physical now. And, and you're compiling a dossier. Uh, oh yeah, sound of it. he's on yeah. a, a Jurgen Klopp retainer. I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I thought one of the most interesting parts of the game was that Brendan Rodgers was booed when he substituted Adam Ola Luckman for James Madison. Uh, he kind of s- sidestepped the question by saying, you know, fans can obviously fans are entitled to do what they want. They paid their money, but there is a, 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 a kind of supposition now amongst Leicester fans that Madison is very much. Rogers is teacher's pet and he hasn't performed that well for a while and I think it stops them playing the two strikers up front which is what Leicester fans want now because they've got Kelechi Inacio and Pats and Daka both sat on the bench getting odd minutes in in the league so yeah it was interesting just the first sort of small signs of dissent which you know is, is harsh on Brendan Rogers, but it represents the frustration that Vardy is still having to play on his own up front. Daniel, tick the box marked uh, Watford-Newcastle for us. Uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting how the game changed when, when Ozan Tufan came on. Uh, he, he arrived from Fenerbahce on a season-long loan and there was talk of Liverpool wanting him back in March, which I guess was agent talk, but he's got his Premier League move and he's not been up to full match fitness so he hasn't played any minutes, but came on at half-time for Tom Cleverley and... Yeah, basically changed the game, created more chances than any other player on the pitch in in 45 minutes. So that's a good one for Watford moving forward, I think. But Colin briefly mentioned it earlier. Newcastle should have been out of sight in this game. They should have they should have comfortably won. As it is, still searching for their first victory. All right then. Well, 
Uh, very shortly, we'll have Julian Laurence uh, joining us to talk about Paris Saint-Germain, who will be welcoming Mighty Man City on Tuesday to the Parc des Princes in the Champions League. Before we hear that, though, let's get some odds from Paddy Power with producer Charlie. Thanks to you, Jimbo. I'm here with Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. It's full steam ahead. Champions League ahoy. Tuesday brings us such delights as PSG v Man City. El Cachico, some call it. I've no idea what that means. I don't speak Spanish. And Carl, I really don't know what's going to happen in this one. Well, Charlie, it's going to be a full-blooded affair, that's for sure. And if the Parisians can manage to keep all of their players on the pitch this time round, they'll have a huge chance of being right in the contest for the full 12 rounds. Man City are 13-10, to 10, Charlie PSG are 15-8, to 8, and the draw is 5-2. to 2. City as Fabs is probably fair enough as Pep and his charges really had their opponent's number in the Champions League semis in both legs last season. And that was before Angle Di Maria and co. threw their rattle out of the pram with costly indiscipline. Let's hope Messi is fit for this one, though. His record against English clubs in the Champions League is outstanding, Charlie, having scored 26 goals. And who doesn't want to see the Galactico trio of Mbappe, Neymar and Messi make sweet music together? Then on Wednesday, it's the Europa League final rematch. Man United v Villarreal. They've met in the Champions League four times before and every single game has ended nil-nil. Yes, I am the type of person to back a nil-nil. But should I, Carl? First of all, a fresh face Ronaldo started three of those nil-nil draws that you mentioned, Charlie, back in his first spell at Old Trafford. And come to think of it, he's still pretty fresh face now at 36. I wonder what moisturiser he uses. Anyway, to answer your question, no, do not, Charlie. Yes, it's a massive price at 13 to 1, the nil-nil draw. But 13 is also the number of goals Ronaldo got against Villarreal during his time in La Liga for Real. It'll be his first game back at Old Trafford under the lights on a European night. I think he'll sink a few against the Yellow Submarine and he'll be around 5-2 to two in the first goal-scorer market. With Manchester United and De Gea looking for revenge for the Europa League final defeat last May, we make Man United the odds-on favourites to win at 4-9, to nine, Charlie. Villarreal 11-2 and the draw is 7-2. to two. But how about Villarreal to miss a penalty at 14-1, to one, listeners? They scored 11 pens in a row against a helpless De Gea in the Europa League final and it was the Spaniard who missed the crucial pen in sudden death. Dave will be gunning to make a save if a pen comes his way. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18's only terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League show. That's also out today, Monday. Detailing such delights as Steve Cooper getting a point. Nottingham Forest 14th manager in 10 years. Guiding his side to a 1-1 draw against Millwall. Hurrah. Uh, also fresh for you soon from the Totally Football stable, we've got the European edition. Uh, that'll see Jules, James, Rafa and Alvaro discussing such diverse topics as Maldini Jr., Ansu Fati, whatever happened in the Bundesliga and more. And of course, all the midweek European fixtures. Crikey. Apropos of which, let's welcome Julian Laurence. Uh, on PSG's chances against Man City, PSG, who you will recall, only managed a 1-1 draw in their first game against Bruges. They've been doing brilliantly in league, uh, but big questions remain about how well this superstar group of players is suited to Poch or vice versa. Anyway, over to Jules. I think he's evolving as a as a manager and also like like every good manager, great manager, you also adapt in a way to the players that you have. Mm. I, the Messi signing 
just fell upon that club, a bit like the Neymar one, to be fair, in the sense that this was not planned, as in, where do we need to strengthen? Who can we right. get next season? Messi's yeah. name was never on that list because they all thought it was impossible to get him. So he has to obviously do with it now. Uh, and it's, it's, it's obviously a great thing to have and to do. But but I think he, he will have to evolve. You, you still see a bit of that press and counter-press, but not as much. This is not a team that can run as much as his, his Southampton team and, and certainly not play with the intensity that the Spurs team had in the first three years, really, of his tenure there because they're just different players and you don't play with this squad in the same way, in a way that you play with the Spurs squad that he had, certainly not over 90 minutes. So I think he will have to evolve. I, I want to believe that he's clever and talented enough to be okay in this club, with these squads, with this philosophy that he has, that he will just have to tweak a little bit. But it's a fair question. It's a good question. We'll have to see. The jury is out. There's some really good things and some things that are not good enough yet, but there's still a long way to go. Mm, eight wins from eight in the league. But in the Champions League, the one game so far kind of laid a lot of those issues bear uh, the 1-1 the draw away in, in Bruges. How close do you think is Pochettino to kind of resolving uh, the issues that we saw there? I think they, they, they're working on it in terms of the balance of the team, which is something that we highlighted when we saw that game together against Bruges, where clearly when they lost the ball, it was too easy for Bruges then to, to build an attack uh, and very quickly creating a chance out of it. I think there might be some improvement again against City and they might decide to play with Di Maria as well as Messi, Neymar and Mbappé in, in a sort of 4-2-3-1 formation like against Lyon and try to go and press really high and, and not let City play their game. But it's not as simple as that because there will still be a, a moment where your two midfielders would be under a lot of pressure, would be exposed. They would let their defence exposed too. So they're working on it. They don't have much time to work between games because now they play every three, three, three days. The need and the desire and I think the, the time to work on that balance of the team and make sure that it's not too easy for whoever they play against, whoever is the position, to, to create chances. Because if Bruges can play that well against this PSG team, score one goal but easily could have scored three, just imagine what the City team that we saw against Chelsea on Saturday can do to this PSG team. Right. And you also wonder the kind of press that City put on Chelsea on, on Saturday. How well do you think PSG are going to cope with that? That's one of the keys of the game, for sure. I, I do think that if you have a Lionel Messi almost, almost, let's say he's fit, if he plays or 80% fit or whatever, uh, and you play him centrally, so not out wide in a 4-3-3, but you go, you bold and you go for the 4-2-3-1 and you've got your two holding midfielders, I don't know, Gay and Paredes or Gay and Herrera. Herrera has been really, really good this season so far. And then you've got Messi as your number 10, then he will help you massively. The thing that was missing for me for Chelsea against City, and especially to beat the press, is that they had no... Number 10, no one who was free between the lines, who could receive that ball, who became an option. I think if mm. Messi is that guy for PSG and you almost exclusively look for him, he's the one capable of keeping the ball even with two or three players you know, behind his back, behind him. So I do think that Messi would be a really good option. Neymar dropping would be a good option. I think Hakimi can help in, in that build-up play. Uh, and... But he will be hard. It will certainly be hard. And then PSG certainly will have to do the same to City far more than Chelsea ever did in that game on Saturday. 
And mm. again, I'm not too convinced that Messi, Mbappe, Neymar, Di Maria, I think they can, they, you, everybody can press and counter press. You just need to run. But you have to do it in a very efficient way. Otherwise, it's too easy for the other team to be your press. And I'm not sure just now these front three or four are coordinated enough in their press to make it efficiently enough to trouble City. Of course, PSG met Man City back in the spring and got beaten home and away 2-1 in, in Paris. I guess this fixture now is kind of the reason that they went out and one of the reasons they went out and bought Messi in the summer. Now, he is in doubt for Tuesday's game. Would it be crazy to say that given the problems with balance they've had, it might not be disastrous if he wasn't fit? Yeah, you're right. That is a fair thing to say because there might be more ammunition for City to, you know, to cause you problems than if he was not there. Because then if he's not there, for example, you can play a 4-3-3 formation that is far more balanced, that is more solid in midfield, that you know is going to protect you defensively a bit more. On the other hand, if Messi is there, Messi can win you that game in one instant and you win 1-0 because you've, you know, you've, you've, you've collectively had a good game, but, but he's that kind of player anyway. But again, just finish quickly on what mm. you said on last season. That first leg in Paris, the first half, was maybe the, the best 45 minutes from PSG in a very long time. They were so good. They should have been 2 or 3-0 up. They were not. They were not efficient enough in the, in the city box after they, they opened the scoring. And the second half, they sort of took the eyes a little bit off the ball and City were just really good, slightly lucky on the two goals they scored, but still were very, very much better in that second half. So PSG have done it before. They've created problems, caused problems to the City team, but they will have to do it in a more consistent way over the whole 90 minutes on Tuesday. Well, it's going to be quite an occasion, isn't it? Manchester City against the phenomenal lineup that Paris Saint-Germain have assembled. Who wouldn't love to be going along to the Parc de France on Tuesday, eh, Daniel? Yes, cannot wait. There's something magical I always think about getting on a train and getting off the train in a different country. And when you get Cardiff, off... And when you, you are get- games. That- yeah. Agreed. Uh, no, but there's something... The best part of this job, I think, is arriving in a European city on a match day of a Champions League game and kind of feeling that buzz, especially now there are away fans allowed there. So... Yeah, I cannot wait. Obviously, there's a, a Messi draw, so I'm I'm glad to hear Jules say that Messi is likely to be fit because every chance we get to watch him, we should take. But yes, I'm um, yeah, I'm really excited about the game. Nice one, very good. Well, Tuesday we'll have uh, much more of that kind of thing in our Euro edition, but that wraps it up for this Totally Football show. So many thanks to Colin and Daniel and Sasha and producer Charlie, and you listener. I hope you've enjoyed the show, and we'll join us again next time. For now. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. 